All right, um, who, who or what can we be praying for this evening? And keep Miss Eden in our prayers. Obviously, with the loss of, of Thomas uh, last week, and then she's got a procedure this Friday that she's prepping for. So definitely be mindful of her and prayerful. I saw Miss Evelyn today. She's doing well. She's, she's at home. Evelyn, Evelyn Wilson, she's at home, and she's doing well. Linda Oakley, a family member of Linda Harris, has pancreatic cancer, stage four. Stage four. It's not doing well. Then I have a bus driver named James Poole that has prostate cancer. Bus driver at Steve's school. Prostate cancer. So that was Barbara Winston. Winstead. Winstead, sorry. Don Wheelis rejecting a transplant suffering from leukemia. Anyone else? Kristen Denny. Young mother, cancer, and back surgery today. Cindy Sumner's father-in-law. Mr. Sumner. Okay. Cindy Sumner's father-in-law. before the Lord together. Lord, thank you for the privilege to pray and to come before you. Thank you that you know everything and that you can handle everything. Thank you, God, that the things that surprise us and interrupt our lives and conflict with our expectations and cause fear and anxiety and stress within us. Thank you, God, that they don't affect you that way. We are grateful that you are a steadfast, unmoving, unchanging, all-powerful, all-good God. So because of those things, Lord, we know we can come to you in prayer. We know we can come to you with the things that do affect us in those ways. Uh, we, we lay those who are sick and suffering in various ways at your feet. Lord, many suffering from cancer, surgeries, and other sicknesses. Lord, those recovering at home. Lord, we pray for healing. Lord, we pray for physical healing for them. We pray more so for physical, I mean for spiritual healing. That they might know you through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for Miss Edna as she is 
dealing with the loss of her husband while also preparing for a a surgery this week. We pray that you would comfort her in a very special way, that you would dwell with her and hold her together. Pray the same for the rest of the family, that you would comfort them as they mourn Thomas's passing. Lord, pray for those right here in this room that continue to suffer. Pray for Desiree as she continues to go through treatments. Lord, we pray for Brother Justin as he continues to heal. We praise you for how you're at work in those situations. Lord, we pray that we would be lights for the gospel wherever we come into contact with people. Lord, while, we, while, while we hope for physical healing, we know that our, our ultimate healing is found in you. And so, Lord... May we spread the gospel far and wide. God, as we turn our attention now uh, to Leviticus, we pray that you would come and help us. It's a difficult book. We confess that. But it's a good book. It's in your, it's in your word. And Paul was talking about Leviticus when he said all scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. To God, help us to see the glory of King Jesus as we look through the book of Leviticus. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. All right. Uh, Well, go ahead and flip open to Leviticus if you've got your Bibles. We will look at a few different passages as we move through, but uh, as with the other studies, my goal is not necessarily to teach through it right in order, but... For us to come away with an understanding of what is this book about, what is God doing with this book, uh, perhaps one of the most unread, misunderstood books in the Bible. And I want, I want you to come away this evening with a deep appreciation for this book. Even, though, even It may not ever be part of your devotion. It may not ever be part of your uh, quiet time reading. You know, it may not be part of your memorizing which animals to bring and what had to be true of them and how many this and that and the other. But I hope you come away with a deep appreciation that Jesus Christ is front and center in this book of the Bible, just as he is in every other book. So that's my goal tonight. Um, I'm going to skip over uh, the date and the author. You can read that for yourself. The purpose of the book in its original context was an explanation of the law that was given in at Sinai. So if you remember, uh, that's all I have left. Um, they moved from Egypt through the wilderness for about three months, and then they plant, they camp around Mount Sinai. They're there for about a year. And during that time, God gives the law to Moses. And so the book contains the instructions that God has given to Moses while they were at Sinai, in addition to the Ten Commandments. And unlike Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus is not structured around a story. Genesis and Exodus are both stories. Leviticus is not a story. So if you try to read Leviticus like you read Genesis and Exodus, you'll be disappointed because it's not a story. So we need to adjust how we read it. We need to adjust what we're expecting. So what we should expect is a detailed explanation of the law, which, surprise, surprise, is what we get. So... Uh, It's not structured around a story, but Leviticus is one of the most important Old Testament books for properly understanding the New Testament. If we don't have a good grasp on Leviticus, then we won't have as full of an understanding of the New Testament, specifically the book of Hebrews, as we could have. Because Hebrews, y'all know what a biblical commentary is? Like you might have a study Bible. Like down at the bottom of your study Bible, you've got those study notes that's a commentary on the Bible. So Hebrews is, is like a commentary on Leviticus. Hebrews is saying, here is what Leviticus means. You come to Leviticus and you read some of those things and you come away saying, well, what does that mean? And the writer of Hebrews is saying, well, it's, out, it's, it's all about Jesus and here's how. And I'll show you some more about that in a few minutes. The outline of the book, first seven chapters are about the various kinds of sacrifices people have to make. Chapters 8 through 10 are about the preparation of Aaron as he's stepping in to be the first high priest over the people of Israel. 
Chapters 11 through 15 talk about purity laws. Chapter 16 is devoted to the Day of Atonement. Every year, Israel would have the Day of Atonement called Yom Kippur. And that would be the day when the sins of the whole nation were atoned for. It happened every single year. And the rest of the book, the last 10 chapters, are about various laws on holiness. So two major truths that emerge from the book, not the only two truths, but two major takeaways that I think help us understand what Moses was doing with Leviticus and why it's in the Bible are these. We see that God's people are distinct, therefore they should lead holy lives. Now, that word should is a moral term. If I say you should do something, what I'm implying is that it's wrong not to do it. So when we say things like, hey, you should do this, we're saying it's wrong not to, or it's incorrect not to, it's improper not to. So in this statement, the fact that God's people are distinct means that they are to lead holy lives, which implies that it's improper or sinful when they don't. Now, the second thing that comes out of this is that God's people are sinful. So they should lead holy lives. And the second truth is they don't lead holy lives. Therefore, they need a sacrifice. Those are the two truths I want you to come away with as we study this. Something else we want to talk about before I get into it is what's the role of the law now? Does the Old Testament law apply today? I'm going to give you a very brief meaning of that, or an explanation of that. Jesus talks about the law and the Sermon on the Mount. We just studied through that. He said, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So Jesus honored the law with his life. He said it, he said it was essential to his ministry. So that should give us some insight there. Paul teaches that the law itself is a guardian for us as we get to Christ, or a, a tutor, or a teacher, that the law teaches us unto Jesus Christ. And so the New Testament speaks of the law authoritatively, speaks of it as it's not gone by any means. But here's what we call the threefold distinction within the law. Last week we talked about the, the specific number of laws. Do you all remember? 613 individual laws, they can be lumped into three different categories. The first one is those ceremonial laws. This is how the Israelites were to be in right relation to God, how they were to uh, make certain sacrifices, how things became clean and unclean, and we'll talk about that somewhat in depth in just a few moments. But we understand that part of the law to have passed away. That was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, he's come to fulfill the law, we understand that portion of the law to be fulfilled in the priestly ministry of Jesus. Now, the second part of the law is civil law. The right relation to one another. Israel was an ethnic nation unto itself. And so God gave them laws on how to live as a society, much in the same way that we have civil laws, like don't steal stuff from your neighbor, don't speed. We have civil laws that teach us how to live inside of America. Israel was its own nation, its own geographic ethnic nation, and so God gave them civil laws. But now God's people are no longer one ethnic nation on the earth, but a multitude from all the nations. The New Testament talks that in Romans 13 that we are to respect the governing laws in whatever land we find ourselves in. And so this part of the law passed away when ethnic Israel expanded to the nations. And then the last part of the law is the moral portion of the law, which is a right reflection of God's character. And because God's character is unchanging, the moral law is still in full effect. Now, the punishments for breaking the moral law would have been under the civil portion of the law, so those have changed. So when you hear people talking about stoning and putting to death for certain things, which we'll look at, that was an executing of the civil law, 
in Israel. So those things have changed, but what's moral has not changed. That makes sense? Any questions about that? Okay. So let's talk about Leviticus. The first thing I want us to see is that God's people are distinct, therefore they should lead holy lives. Leviticus, uh, while not applying specifically in the same way today, still bears upon us as the New Testament church. It still bears upon every Christian alive today. And its primary role is to bring us face to face with the holiness of God. Now I want you to think for a moment. Think about your Christian life. Think about the activities that make up your Christian life, whether that includes a a daily devotion, whether that includes memorizing scripture, serving in local church, evangelizing, whatever goes into you being a Christian. What is the impact of God's holiness on your life? Like how often do you stop and dwell on the truth that God is holy, that he's set apart, that he's without sin, that he has a distinct and furious hatred of sin. How much does that bear down on you? Because that's the main focus of of Leviticus, that God is holy, and it's meant to bring us right face to face with that truth. And we see this in a number of ways throughout the book. First thing we see is that God's priests must be holy. Flip to Leviticus chapter 10. When God gave the law to the people of Israel, he arranged them in a certain order. There were 12 tribes of Israel, if you know that story. They descend from the 12 uh, sons at the end of Genesis uh, 12. Jacob. Jacob's 12 sons, so you got to go through the order sometimes. Jacob's sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And God arranges the tribes in a certain order in the wilderness, and that's the way they are to live. They are to set up their camp in a certain way. And right in the middle of the camp was the tabernacle. That was to be the central focus of their lives. And so to carry out the work of the tabernacle, God set aside a special tribe to work it, to be priest. Set aside the tribe of Levi. And so we'll look at this in a moment, what they actually did. But the priests from the tribe of Levi were to carry out the work of the tabernacle. They had this special assignment of being God's chosen, set-apart people. And so because of that, they had the added responsibility of being holy as an example to the rest of the, the nation. God intended to be able to say, all right, uh, these are the priests, so the rest of y'all pay attention to these folks so that you know how to live. No pressure, right? That was their point. That was one of the reasons why they were called to, an, to, a, to a higher level of holiness. They were to be examples. So look in chapter 10. Nadab and Abihu were the sons of Aaron. Each took his censer and put fire in it I'm in chapter 10, verse 1, and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Now, we need to understand, God doesn't tell us what's unauthorized about it. Your Bible may read strange fire, but what it does tell us is that God had not given them permission to do this. They were the sons of Aaron, which means they were of the priestly line. They were priests themselves. They were to act in a certain way in accordance with God's word. They were to serve as examples to God's people, specifically in how do we approach God rightly. And here they are doing something that God has not permitted them to do. So look at verse 2. It says, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And it says, and Aaron kept his mouth shut. So what's going on here? 
Well, the answer to what's going on in this, this startling account, the answer gives us an insight into what the book of Leviticus is about. Everything God did and commanded was for a purpose, and the purpose was to form God's to form Israel into God's people and the continual forming of them into God's people as God's people. So it's like this. Salvation as a Christian leads into sanctification, which means once I'm saved, the gospel continues to work itself out in my life until I die. So I am saved by Jesus Christ and I am transformed continuously forever by Jesus Christ. And so what the law reveals is that God, through the law, God makes Israel his people, but is continuously transforming them into his people in that same way. So as I said, at the center of Israel's camp was the tabernacle. It was a physical reminder that God was to be the center of their lives. He set apart the 12 tribes. I said that just a few moments ago. The Levites had to be especially distinct. Israel had to be distinct. The Levites had to be especially distinct. They had to be ceremonially clean. We'll talk about cleanness in just a few moments. They had to be physically whole. They couldn't have bodily marks. They couldn't, they couldn't, be, they couldn't lose a, have a limb missing. They had to be whole to serve before the Lord. In the same way as the New Testament says that Christian elders or pastors, their children, their homes have to be well cared for and wholesome. Their homes have to be honorable to the Lord. The law says that the priest's homes had to be honorable to the Lord, that their children could not bring shame upon God. And so by acting contrary to the commands of God, Aaron's sons fail to fulfill their purpose. They fail to uphold God's law. They fail as examples of holiness to be holy. They were not acting distinctly. And so God was demonstrating his fury against sin as he rightly took their life. They violated his law. Their position inside of God's people meant that their violation was a gross violation. And so God meted out punishment. Well, let's look at what was distinct about the priesthood. What did they do? What did God set them aside to do? They had special duties. They performed the sacrifices. An ordinary Israelite citizen would bring an animal to the tabernacle to be sacrificed for their sins. If this were you, you would come into the tabernacle with your animal. You would come up to a priest. The priest would meet you, and then you would slit the neck of the animal. That was your job to do. It was your sin that was being atoned for, and therefore it was your job to put the animal to death. The priest would then collect the blood and take it to the altar to offer the blood on the altar. And then the priest would carry the body of the animal outside of the camp because a corpse was unclean. And God had forbidden anything unclean to be inside the camp. So other types of sacrifices the priests would oversee, such as grain offerings and things like that, also carried out by the priest. But there was also something else that we often overlook. That God tasked the priest with teaching the people the word of God. That was their other main job, to oversee and facilitate the operations of the tabernacle, but also to teach the commands of God to the people so that the people walked in obedience. Uh, We see this in chapter 10, verse 10. It says, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So the implication is, if the Levites don't do their job in teaching, the people won't know the difference between clean and unclean, between distinct and undistinct. The people won't be able to walk in holiness before the Lord if the Levites aren't doing their job. Well, we also see they had special provisions. Along with their duties, God cared for them in a special way. They received their provision or their livelihood 
because they were God's special servants. God set them apart inside of the nation of Israel. After they would oversee the sacrifice, God allowed them to eat the animals for food. Now, we'll talk about how, some, how, how the priest could eat something that had become unclean. Because if you remember, a corpse becomes unclean. But the priest had to eat. And you, you'll see it there in your notes. The other tribes worked for their food. They toiled for their food. But the priests, because God had set them aside, he said, your task, your job is to carry out the work of the tabernacle, which was 24 hours a day, 365, and to teach. Do you know how much food that produces? None. They couldn't produce their own food because of the work that God had called them to. And so God knew that and God cares for all of his people. And so we see God caring for his special servants by allowing them to eat the food of the sacrifice. That's how they were, that's how they survived. That's how God cared for them. We also see that along with their duties and their provisions, they were under a heightened special judgment. They were recognized, they had special duties, they were revered in the community, but they also bore a heavier judgment, which brings us back to Aaron's sons. They were held out publicly as models of obedience. God should have been able, that that was his law, you look at my priest and you see how I expect you to behave. Like every other priest, they were looked to to exemplify the commands of God, and yet they decided to approach God on their terms, not on his terms. And God responds properly. And so a warning that we can take away from Leviticus is that we don't get to approach God however we would. We don't get to tell God, this is how I'm going to come to you. We don't get to tell God, this is how I'm going to talk to you, and this is how I expect you to respond. Leviticus brings us face to face with the holiness of God, which says we need to approach God carefully. Now, remember I said Hebrews was a commentary on Leviticus? Hebrews tells us that because of Jesus Christ, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, which is good news. But we better not misunderstand confidence for arrogance. That's a humble confidence, not an arrogant confidence. The Lord warns Aaron later on in chapter 16. Aaron's the holiest man in the land, the high priest, the only one permitted to go into the most holy part of the tabernacle. He warns Aaron, don't enter God's presence however you might choose because it'll be the end of you. Don't be so foolish as to think you can just walk in. Look, remember your sons. Be careful. It's a serious thing to worship God. He is not, God is not our errand boy. He does not respond to every whim and beck and call that we might bring to him. Sometimes we treat God like he's our genie. But Leviticus corrects that. Prayer should not be casual and thoughtless. Prayer should be filled with humility and with reverence and with the right understanding of who it is we are speaking to. We should not, we should not approach God improperly. Top of page three, the Bible teaches that mankind cannot approach God on our terms. We don't get to come to God just the way we are. Now, there's the old hymn, Come Just As You Are, right? Some of you may be thinking about that as soon as I said that. That's, it's a different thought. Come as you are because Christ will save you is, the, is the, the theme of that hymn. And so the point of the hymn is we are changed in order to get to God. Leviticus, the point is saying we can't come to God unless we are changed. We don't have it within ourselves to be right with God on our own. God has to make a way for us to come to him. We see it from the very beginning. Adam and Eve tried to make their own way to God. What'd they do? They sinned and what'd they do? They tried to sew some leaves together and God said, that's not going to do. So God was the one who made them garments of skin. And God has been providing the way back to him ever since then. 
And here again, the people could not come to God without him first making a way. And the law at this point in biblical history was the way back to God for the people. And the priesthood demonstrates this. And it's through the priesthood that we begin to see the cross of Jesus Christ come into focus. Now, it's, it's blurry. If, you, if we don't have the rest of the Bible, it's blurry. But see, you know, this is, this is the Bible upright. Genesis, Revelation. We read the Bible like this. We read the Bible, Revelation to Genesis. Makes a whole lot more sense when we read it like that. Now, I don't mean that literally. You can still read it, Genesis, Revelation. Some of y'all were confused. What I mean is that when we read Leviticus, we have the cross clearly in our minds. We have seen Jesus through the word, which makes Leviticus have a whole different flavor than what the Israelites experienced in the wilderness. You see, when the Israelites got the law, they weren't thinking, oh yeah, Jesus on the cross. They hadn't seen him yet, and they wouldn't see him. But for us, as we read this book, this is where we start to see a fuzzy outline of the cross come into view. One of the core truths of Christianity is that we do not have everything we need in ourselves. That we lack what we need to be right with God. And so you see there, the goal of our church is not to strengthen esteem, not to give each other a pat on the back and say, it's okay, man, just keep trying, you'll get there. If you just try hard enough, you'll get there. If you just behave well enough for long enough, God will be pleased with that. That's not, that's not our goal as the church. Our goal as the church is to say, you have nothing within your own self. You have no capability to be right with God. You are hopelessly alienated from God unless God does something on your behalf, which he has done. And Leviticus brings us face to face with that. It brings Israel face to face with that. You can't be right with God on your own. You have to come through sacrifice. There has to be a way made. Pastor said, if you want to find God, you must first come to the end of yourself, which sounds very familiar to the way the Sermon on the Mount opens. Matthew 5, verse 3, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And if you remember from the very first night of our study, what that means is, I will never be filled with the Spirit until I'm emptied of all that's natural within me. And the point here is the same. If I try to get to God on my own, I'll never get there. It's not until God makes a way for me that I can get to him. In one way, the Old Testament priests are like New Testament pastor elders in our churches. They are to teach and minister to the people of God. That's their role. That's their function within the nation of Israel. They were also held up as examples, which is why in the New Testament, Paul says, let those who aspire to the office of overseer, which is the office of pastor, do so with joy, but with great caution because that the, the, the load of judgment is heavier. I'm not called to anything different than you are. I'm just called to be looked at, which is a big deal. And it's the same way with the priest. But in a different way, or in another way, not a different way, but another way, they are like every Christian because Peter calls the church a kingdom of priests. God didn't expect the priest to behave in any way different than the rest of the people. Everybody was under the law. Everybody had to behave the same way. The priests were just expected to be examples. And so in the same way as pastors are to be examples of Christianity for their churches, that doesn't mean that the behavioral standards are any different for y'all that the holiness standards are any more relaxed for y'all. The priesthood, primarily, inside of the Bible, the priesthood is meant to point us to Jesus Christ. That's what their ultimate biblical role is. That when we look at the priest, we should say, oh yeah, Jesus. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 8, it's towards the end of the Bible. You know, as you study your Bible, the best commentary that you can get on the Bible is the Bible. 
it's it's best to let the Bible clarify things about itself. Now, other commentaries are helpful, and if you come in my office or to my home, you'll find that I have a lot. But the Bible helpfully clarifies itself in most places. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, the writer says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it's necessary for the priest also to have something to offer, which means for himself. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Here's what that means. The writer of Hebrews is saying, remember the Old Testament system. Remember the tabernacle, the tent of meeting is what it was called. It was put up by men. God tasked men to run it. The high priest himself had to give an offering for himself before he even, he, before he even could enter in and make atonement. They were just shadows. Because we have a better high priest. We have a high priest who doesn't need to offer a sacrifice for himself. We have a high priest who can walk directly into that place on his own, on his own merit, and offer the sacrifice once for all that's needed because he's better. See, that's what was meant with the priesthood. We'll flip back to Leviticus because I want us to see that the whole people must be distinct. God not only required the priest to be distinct, but the whole people. We see this with Aaron's sons. They were put to death, but we also see this with an unnamed man of the tribe of Dan. I thought I put the reference in there. I think it's in chapter 16. But anyhow, this unnamed man goes out and gets in a fight. And while he's fighting, it says he curses the name of God and profanes the name is what it says. It says the name, capital N-A-M-E, which is a reference to the the sacred name of God, the, the name Yahweh. He profaned the name. And it says that God comes to Moses and said he's got to be taken outside of the of the camp and stoned. And so not only were the priests held to account for breaking God's law, the people were held to account for breaking God's law. Oh, I see it there. It's in chapter 24. God's people must be distinct. Otherwise, they lie to the world about who God is. Now, there's a point that drives home today. When we claim Christ, brothers and sisters, when we claim Christ and we go out into the world and we live as pagans, which so many people do, We are telling the world that something that is not true about God. When I claim that I am saved by grace through faith and I turn around and live like there's no grace in my life, I'm lying. Jesus talked about this with the parable of the unforgiving servant. If you remember, he said there's a man that had a debt of 10,000 talents, which is like a bajillion dollars. And he couldn't pay it. He comes to the master, says, Master, I can't pay this debt. And the master says, I forgive you. You won't have to worry about it anymore. I, I absorb the debt. And the guy walks out with his freedom and he sees somebody who owes him a, a dollar. He says, pay me that dollar. And the guy won't pay it, so he throws him in jail. And the master comes back and says, uh, hang on, I, I just forgave you this infinite sum of money, but you, you quibble over a dollar. You don't understand what you just received. Throw this man in jail. You see, when we claim Christ and yet live like or live unchristianly, we are telling the world a lie. In the same way, when the people of God sinned, they were lying about God's holiness. And so God called them to be 
distinct. We see this exercised in the cleanliness laws and the purity laws. A major theme in Leviticus was distinguishing between what was clean and unclean. If you remember from Sunday a few weeks ago, Mark chapter 5, I think it is, when the lady with the issue of blood touched Jesus' robe, part of, the, part of the, the, the scandal of that was that she would have made him ritually unclean. So what's this clean, unclean got to do with anything? Most everything in life, most everything for the life of the Jews would have fallen inside the clean category. If we evaluate the whole law, most of it would have been clean. Some things were unclean, such as some foods, certain actions made people unclean. But being unclean was not necessarily a bad thing, and it wasn't always unredeemable. Most unclean things could be cleansed. Additionally, unclean did not necessarily mean wrong or even that you could avoid it. Someone who committed an immoral action such as adultery or homosexuality or murder, other things, these made a person unclean. But a woman who suffered a miscarriage, a person with an infectious skin disease, a person who cared for the body of a deceased loved one, they were also ceremonially unclean. Some of those things are avoidable. Some of them aren't. Sexual intercourse within marriage, childbirth, menstruation. Leviticus says all of these things made a person unclean. And none of those things are wrong. And so unclean did not always mean morally bad or morally wrong. But what Leviticus does hold up is that unclean, something that was unclean, had to be cleansed. So this idea of taking something that's unclean and moving it to the clean category is where we get our New Testament word sanctification or the process of sanctifying something. So if you became unclean through just an everyday act of living, you had to be sanctified before you could rightly approach God again. There were laws on how to do that. And when holy things were brought into contact with unclean things, that was called profaning. And so when something clean is, or unclean is moved to clean, that's sanctifying. But when we take something clean or holy and we bring it to the unclean portion, we have profaned it. We have profaned it, just as the unnamed man profaned the name. According to Leviticus, there are some things that should never meet. There are some holy things, excuse me, that should never be made unholy. This is why the dead bodies of the sacrifices had to be taken outside of the camp because they were unclean and they could not be kept inside where God demanded cleanness. Here's a few takeaways from this. Because what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to get into all the, the specificities of the law. I hope what I'm giving to you helps you understand why there is specificity because God was particularly concerned. So here's a few takeaways. Leviticus, the Levitical law shows that God is indifferent about nothing. Let that rest on you a minute. You do a lot every day in your life. You do a lot of actions. You think a lot of thoughts. You have a lot of intentions. God is indifferent about none of it. That's one of the the truths Leviticus brings to the surface. Nothing is morally neutral to God. That's true today. Nothing is neutral. God doesn't look down on us and say, oh yeah, that doesn't matter. God cares about it all. Second thing is that the law shows us that God cares tremendously, more than I think we can even fathom, about how he is worshipped. We don't get to determine. See, see, uh, I think um, Jeff Norman, you asked me uh, on one of our very first meetings how I would handle an issue over uh, differences in worship style. And unfortunately, that's a very common discussion in churches. People can get upset about all kinds of things. But see, here's the issue. The issue is not which style is right. The issue is what does God approve of and what doesn't God approve of? Our preferences are secondary to what God has said is primary. 
We can have different preferences and love each other like nobody else. But it's, it's a sin when we let secondary things take the place of something that's primary. And God cares tremendously about how we approach him in worship. Third thing the law highlights is that, and this is something that Israel began to learn, the law highlights that God's concern for purity was fundamental when it comes to entering a relationship with him and staying in that relationship. God's concern for purity, which means being cleansed from sin, that was a primary consideration when, we, when, we t- when we're talking about entering a relationship with God and staying in that relationship with God. Which is why the sacrificial system went on and on and on and on. Any questions so far? It's like sipping from a fire hydrant. <laughs> All right. Well, in addition to cleanness, There was holiness codes. Last 10 chapters talk about this. God desired that his people live as he commanded them to live. He didn't give the law and say, hey, hope it works. Or hey, if you you only give this 90% of the time, that'll work. He gives the law with the expectation that we will be obedient to the law. There must be no false worship, no idolatry, no child sacrifice, no sorcery, no uh, uh, sexual sin is forbidden. There's a whole chapter about it, several chapters about it. God also calls Israel to moral transparency and integrity. So not only does he say, don't do all of this stuff. Now, a lot of the stuff he forbids was stuff that other pagan nations did. We will see later as our study unfolds in the, New Te- in the Old Testament that Israel does in fact participate in sorcery and we see people sacrificing their children on the altars of fire inside of the temple in Jerusalem. Did y'all know that? One of the kings does that, brings his own child into the altar inside of the temple and sacrifices him and burns him inside of the temple of God. That's what the pagans did and God said, don't be like them. But in addition to forbidding a lot of things, God says you are to do certain things. You are to be morally transparent. You are to, be, uh, you are to lead lives of integrity. You must be honest in your business dealings. God cares so much about his people's integrity as to say, don't curse deaf people. Do you know who doesn't know if you curse at them? Deaf people. And God cares enough about his people's integrity as to say, don't even do that. Because somebody hears, and it's God. The deaf person may not hear, but God hears. Jesus quotes from Leviticus 19 when he says, love your neighbor neighbor as yourself. It's a direct quote from the Levitical law. And that really clarifies the foundation of the law, which is the love of God. Here's, a, here's another major reason why we should care and why we should read and study the book of, Le- of Leviticus is that it's ultimately about God's love. Every command is rooted in love, either right love of God or right love of neighbor. That's at the heart of every single command. We may find some of them hard and laborsome and, and, and wonder how did they remember all of this stuff? But if we remember at the core of every single one of these was right love of God and right love of neighbor, then that that changes it a bit. Holiness involved refraining from sin, but also being aware that sometimes I I sin unintentionally or I, I don't do things that I should do. Not every sin will be seen or known by others, but Leviticus highlights that God sees all. You should be having a flashback to uh, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you have heard it said you shall not murder, but I say to you, if you hate in your heart, God even judges and sees our intentions. Well, in chapter 26, God gives a list of blessings and curses that would come from obedience and disobedience. He says to the people, if you obey, good things will happen. If you disobey, bad things will happen, and I will exile you. 
He promised that he would exile them. He reminds them 40 years later, after they wander in the wilderness for 40 years, at the end of Deuteronomy, they're about to go into the promised land. And he says, remember the law. Remember that if you do it, it'll go well. If you break it, it'll go bad, and I'll exile you. And do you know what happens a little bit later in Israel's history? They forget God. They break the law. They profane the name, and guess what happens? They're exiled. And God tells them, don't do this or this will happen. If you remember last week we studied Exodus and the theme of sovereignty came up. Here's another, here's another uh, clear marker of sovereignty. That God says, this will happen if you do this. It happened and then he exiled them. Here's a modern application a pastor observes. He says, uh, I don't know uh, that if God's people are, uh, or, or he says this, I do know that if God's people are undisciplined and indistinct from the people around them, it would seem that God would have little incentive to grant religious liberty to churches that mislead the world about what it means to be Christian. This pastor pastors a church three or four blocks from Capitol Hill. That's one of the things we prize today, religious liberty. That means the government can't come in here and tell us how to do church. We hold on to that. But that's not a promise that God gives us in his word. And his point is that God would have little incentive if we are, quote, telling the church we're being, we're telling the world, we are the church of Christ, and yet we're going about it in a way that, that's totally dishonoring to God. Why would he allow us to continue to benefit? Just a thought. Well, here's the question. Why obey God? Leviticus answers this question by saying, obedience is the path to prospering, that in obedience God promises to be with us, that obedience is the right response to the proper fear of God. Obedience flows from God's special relationship with his people. Obedience is a right reflection of God's character. And obedience is a gospel witness to the world. When I do in fact obey God, I am telling the truth about God to the world. I don't think I'm going to finish this one tonight. I'm going to do my best because this is probably my favorite part. But this, the second thing I want us to take away, God's people are sinful. And therefore, sacrifice is needed. I'm going to sprint through this. One thing we see is that God requires holiness. The people fail to be holy. Therefore, something is needed. And this word, atonement, emerges out of Leviticus. Atonement means, uh, 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 an easy way to remember it is, at one meant. It means to take two warring parties and bring them together, to reconcile them together. And so, I become in conflict with God when I sin. He's right, I'm wrong. I need to be reconciled to him. I can't do it on my own. That's what Leviticus says. I need God to step in and do something. And so God provides this sacrificial system. So here's the way this works. If I sinned, I took an animal to the tabernacle. I sacrificed it for sin. Sin costs people time. They had to go. They interrupt what they were doing and go to the tabernacle. It cost them uh, livestock. It cost them money. It cost them shame. And they had to do that as often as they sinned, which was a lot. Which is why the Bible says that the smoke of the altar went up continuously. But in addition to that, because God knew that the people would sin and sin and sin, because God knows you and I live in this ongoing state of sin, he knew that there would have to be regular offerings for sin. And so there were regular weekly offerings, monthly offerings, and yearly offerings. And I mentioned this a little bit ago. Every year, the high priest would carry out what's called uh, the, uh, the Day of Atonement. There's a lot that went into that, but he would go into the holiest place in the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. He would make an offering for himself first, and then he would make an offering for the people, a blood offering. This is where we get the term propitiation. Y'all heard that term? Romans 3, it says that God put forth Jesus as our propitiation, which means a blood-cleansing sacrifice. And then he would come out of the Holy of Holies and he'd walk over and there would be a goat there 
They call it the scapegoat. He put his hands on the goat's head, symbolizing the guilt and the sin of the people transferred to the goat. And then the goat was sent out into the wilderness. He was was exiled away from the people of God. We call that the goat of expiation, meaning that the sin was carried far off and away. Psalm 103, God removes our guilt as far as the east is from the west. And then for that year, the people were atoned for. So, flip to your last page. Because here's where we see that fuzzy shape of the cross begin to crystallize, begin to be clearer. You see there, Jesus Christ, about halfway down the page. The high priest was only able to do this once a year. And he was only able to offer a sacrifice once he himself had been cleansed. Here's what that means. He was really insufficient for the task. He needed God to cleanse him before he could ever get to where he could cleanse for the people. No one has been able to absorb the full wrath of God except for Jesus Christ. So look down there at the phrase, the, the, the line, on the cross. On the cross, Jesus fulfills the full weight of the law. He's our high priest, and on the cross, he enters into the very presence of God on behalf of the people of God. He suffered outside of the city because he became unclean in his death. Where was the cross? It wasn't in the middle of the city near the temple. It was outside on a place called Golgotha place of the skull because he became unclean on the cross therefore he could not be inside of the city he suffered or he offered the needed atonement of blood and so by offering his blood he makes atonement or he reconciles us to god he becomes the propitiation for our sin He becomes the expiation. He becomes our scapegoat. So not only does his blood cleanse us of all sin, his blood removes our sin and the guilt of our sin. Because like that scapegoat, when he was sent out into the wilderness and alienated from the people of God, do you know who was alienated on the cross? Jesus. And so that last statement there, you see it. When we look at Leviticus and we look beyond to the cross of Christ, we should think this often. What happened to Jesus should have happened to me because of my sin. See, every time an Israelite would walk into the tabernacle or the temple with their goat, and they would put their hands on that goat, getting ready to sacrifice it, what they were saying is, this should actually happen to me because of my sin. But God has made a way for this to not happen to me. God has provided a substitute in this animal. And that was just a small, fuzzy picture of what was to come. Because when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, what we should say is, that should have happened to me because of my sin. But praise be to God, he provided a substitute. And it's not me. And because Jesus died, was buried, and was resurrected, because of that, not only am I forgiven of my sin, but I'm free to live a life of holiness unto the glory of God. So I hope, I hope your experience of Leviticus might be different going forward. My hope is your experience of Leviticus was good before. But I hope this might have encouraged you to spend some time in Leviticus with these things in your mind. Because God intends us to see the cross in every single book of the Bible. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for putting so much effort, so much detail into your Bible so that in every detail we see the glory of Jesus Christ. God, we see when we look at the priesthood, we see your demand for holiness. We see the need for a greater high priest. We see your son, Jesus Christ.
Lord, when we look at the people, we see brokenness and sin. We see separation from God. And Lord, when we look at Christ, we see that he became broken for us. He became separated from you for us. He became uh, the sacrifice for us so that we might be reconciled to you. God, as, as we look upon the commands to walk faithfully. May we do so with a renewed awe and vigor and motivation because of our King Jesus Christ. May we be people that tell the truth about you to a lost world. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, I skipped some some pretty good stuff, if I say so myself. Uh, So... Go back and read through that, especially the parts about Hebrews. Read through Hebrews uh, and and use your notes. If you have any questions, uh, feel free to come talk to me, but I hope you all have a, a good night.